You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1984. 15-year-old Risa Dawn Trexler lived with her family at the corner of Shaver Street and Bringle Ferry Road in Salisbury, North Carolina. Her mom and stepdad were Vicki and Doug Oates. Risa's biological father, Gary Trexler, also lived in Salisbury. Risa shared a bedroom in the family's very modest white siding house with her 13-year-old sister, Jody, and the two were close, despite the standard teen girl squabbles. Salisbury at the time had two different sides of town. One was more affluent and one was less so, with working-class neighborhoods. The area where Risa's family lived was poor and experienced some crime. Friday, June 15, 1984, was an exceptionally hot day. The kids were on summer break, and it started out typically. That morning, Risa had her friends Paul and Jim over, and they all hung out and watched TV and had lunch. They were joined by Risa's little sister, Jody. When the friends left to go to work around 3 o'clock, the two girls each did their own thing, hanging out in the house. After a time, Jody went to look for Risa and realized she wasn't home. She started to walk next door to her grandparents' house, about 300 feet away, but quickly she could see that the front door was closed and both cars were gone. She guessed no one was home. She assumed that Risa had gone with their grandma or grandpa to do an errand. Since the girl's grandparents, Walt and Edith Monroe, lived right next door at 714 Shaver Street, it was very common for the girls to wander back and forth, hang out with the older couple, and accompany them into town to run errands. In fact, Walt Monroe later told the Salisbury Post that Risa, quote, spent most of her time with us, and that the girls were just as likely to watch TV, eat, or talk on the phone at his and Edith's house as at their own. So Jody went back to her own home and hung out in her and Risa's bedroom, chatting on the phone and listening to music. All of a sudden, at 4.55 p.m., she heard a terrible noise. She ran to the window, which was open because it was summertime. The window had a full view of her grandparents' house. Jody saw her grandfather staggering from the house, yelling, Help! Help! She could see that his fists were clenched as if he were in agony. She sprinted from the house and ran over to Walt Monroe. She later said, Quote, he was hysterical. His hands were shaking up sort of like fists, just shaking. When I was running through the yard, I didn't know if it was my grandmother or Risa. At the same time, Risa and Jody's mom, Vicki Trexler Oates, was just pulling in and turning off her car. Her father's scream startled her. She jumped out of the vehicle and ran over to her dad, thinking her mom had had an accident. He said to her, gasping, call an ambulance. It's Risa. She's on the floor. There's blood. Vicky, shaking, went into the house. 
Gingerly, she walked and then crawled to the figure she saw lying on the floor. Her daughter's eyes were open. Blood was everywhere. Vicky knew immediately that she was dead. Initially, Jody's grandpa blocked her from going into the house as well, but then her mother came out hysterically screaming, No, Daddy! No, no, Daddy! And she ran. She literally sprinted away from the house and down the street. Walt gathered his wits and went inside and called the police, and Jody went inside too to see what was going on. She didn't see anything in the front hallway or living room. Nothing looked disturbed. She went down the hallway and turned a corner, and there she caught a glimpse of the open door to the spare bedroom and on the floor lay her sister. She was not moving. Jody could only see part of her sister's face and her hair. The rest was covered by a bloody blanket that had been taken off the bed. Risa lay face down, slightly on her left side. The room was in disarray, with overturned lamps and furniture knocked askew. Blood was on the mattress at the end of the bed near Risa's body. She stood there in shock as police arrived and gently but firmly escorted her outside. She said later that what she remembers about the scene in the bedroom is blood, but she was too in shock to observe whether there was anything out of place or signs of a struggle. She hadn't even noticed the overturned lamps. Seeing her sister's bloodied body on the floor was so distressing that everything else faded into the background. Police arriving on the scene at 5.08 p.m. had found Risa Trexler's body with Jody standing over it. Under the blanket, Risa lay nude and bloodied from multiple stab wounds to her neck and upper chest. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Outside the house, Jody stood paralyzed in shock. No one told her what was going on. She told the Salisbury Post, quote, I knew she was dead, but I had to have someone tell me, so I asked a policeman and he wouldn't tell me, and I kept asking and asking, and he finally said yes, and I started screaming and ran back home. Meanwhile, Vicky, who had just been running away with no destination, trying to outrun the image she had seen in the guest bedroom of her parents' house, had to be tracked down. Her brother Richard pulled up next to her in his truck as she ran down Moxville Avenue and got her to get in. She wasn't found and brought home until close to 7 p.m. Detective Rick Thibodeau of the Rowan County Sheriff's Office was one of the first on the scene. He saw the stab wounds and blood everywhere. He noted the disruptive items in the bedroom and Risa's purse dumped on the floor with teenage girl items like lip gloss falling out. It was a horrendous scene, and he said that even though he was a seasoned lawman, he was very disturbed by the images. According to the Salisbury Post, the aftermath of when Risa's body was found was bedlam. Sergeant Detective Hurley said of the hours after Risa was found, quote, it was almost chaos out there. You have a traumatized younger sister, a devastated and in shock grandfather, a grandmother who returned from the beauty salon only to find horror in her home, Risa's father arriving on scene to find it crawling with police, and her mother running around town screaming. The family was not permitted in the house and was forced to stand outside, shocked, anguished, and bewildered. Friends and neighbors gathered in clumps on corners, sobbing, whispering, and watching the scene unfold. Once she returned, Risa's mom Vicky could not stand still and walked like a manic zombie in loops around the neighborhood. She said, quote, There were hundreds of people. It was just a circus here. The house was all roped off. Risa's dad, Gary, sat in a lawn chair, sobbing uncontrollably. And Maggie, the family sheepdog, barked and barked. And the whole time, Risa lay there as people stepped over her and around her, bloodied and battered, getting colder by the minute. Let's talk about who Risa was. Risa Dawn Trexler was born on October 10, 1968, in Rowan County. Dad was Gary Trexler. Mom was Vicki Monroe Trexler Oates. 
Risa was just a normal teenage girl. Photos of her show her smiling as she does normal kid things like jump in the pool and dress up like a cowboy. According to her family and her best friend Beth, Risa loved to swim and she loved kids. She was a relatively good student and had ambitions to go to college. At Salisbury High School, she was popular and well-liked. Her close friend Renee told the Salisbury Post of her friend's death, quote, I don't think I'll ever be able to accept it. Beth and Renee told the Salisbury Post that Risa was able to make anyone laugh. Renee said, quote, if you needed cheering up, you counted on her. Risa also had a boyfriend who has never been identified publicly as such, so I am not going to do so either. Risa's parents divorced when she was seven, but her family on both sides remained a big part of her life. Some of her relatives had minor celebrity status in Salisbury. Her grandfather on her dad's side was James P. Pinky Trexler, known for his famous hot dogs at Legion Ball Games. Risa's uncle on her mom's side, Richard Monroe, owned the popular local establishment Richard's Barbecue on North Main Street. Risa's mom was a waitress there, and Risa's grandfather, Walt Monroe, Vicky and Richard's dad worked the barbecue pits every morning starting at 3.30 a.m. Risa also hung out there often. The family-owned restaurant was their home away from home. The restaurant closed abruptly on that Friday night once word got out of the family tragedy. As I said, Risa's parents lived next door to Vicky's parents, the Monroes, whose property included much of the block. Walt and Edith bought the house for Vicky and her girls after her divorce from Gary. Risa and Walt were especially close, often having a cup of coffee together in the evenings. Vicky's brother Eddie, Risa's uncle, also lived in an adjacent home. Risa was surrounded by family, but she still was not safe. An autopsy on Risa was conducted by Dr. John Butts at the Office of the Medical Examiner in Chapel Hill. It showed that she had been stabbed in the throat and shoulder 18 times. The weapon was a knife. One of the thrusts from the blade was so deep and forceful that it severed her spinal cord. She had several knife cuts on her face and in her mouth area and an abrasion on her lip. And the blade from a knife was found, broken off the handle and embedded in her right shoulder near the neck. Someone had used a lot of force. A defensive wound was on the back of Risa's left hand. She had blood in her mouth, and Risa had been sexually assaulted. But this was not revealed for more than three decades. In fact, a December 1984 article in the Salisbury Post citing the autopsy report specifically states that there was no evidence that Risa Trexler was raped. And Dr. Butts was quoted as saying that he had not formed a conclusion as to whether sexual assault had occurred. Basically, they weren't sure whether consensual sex had occurred or whether Risa had indeed been sexually assaulted. Semen was found mixed with the blood on her right leg, and vaginal swabs taken from Risa's body at autopsy revealed the presence of sperm. Those swabs were carefully preserved in evidence. Dr. Butts also took fingernail scrapings and hairs from Risa's neck area. He also lifted a partial print from Risa's right little finger, as well as a small piece of wood from her cheek. The tox report showed that Risa's system was devoid of any alcohol or drugs. And investigators noted that the family did not believe that Risa would have voluntarily engaged in any sexual behavior. She was only 15. On June 21st, Walt Monroe told the Salisbury Post that his granddaughter had put up a fight against her attacker. The room was a bloodstained mess, he said. In a bit of pathos, the bedroom where Risa was slain was the same room where she had spent the first month of her life as a newborn with her parents. 
Vicky and Gary, just teens at the time of her birth, had lived in that room in the Monroe's house until they moved into their own place. Risa's little sister Jody said later that she barely remembers the funeral, which took place on June 20th at Messiah Lutheran Church. Over 200 mourners attended, and others lined the streets to pay their respects. Jim and Paul were pallbearers. Risa's classmates cried and took solace in the service. Jody later posted a photo of her and her father from the funeral where she looks shell-shocked. She does remember that when she looked in the open casket, her sister looked weird because they had used makeup to cover the cuts on her face. Years later, Jody posted a photo of her dad, Gary, sitting in his lawn chair overcome with grief on the day Risa was found murdered. Over the next few weeks, Risa's tearful friends visited her grave constantly, leaving mementos, notes, and flowers. At one point, 15 vases of floral arrangements stood on the grave at Chestnut Hill Cemetery. Notes from her friends quoted in the Salisbury Post read, I love you, Risa. It's been a whole month and it gets harder every day. And I promise never to let your grave go without flowers. And Risa, you were such a great friend. I will always miss you. It's safe to say that Risa was truly beloved by her inner circle. A letter to the Salisbury Post in 1986, written by a teacher at Salisbury High, stated, quote, The number of observances in Risa Trexler's memory are unprecedented at Salisbury High School. Now on to the investigation. Law enforcement cordoned off the entire area of North Shaver Road between Bringle Ferry Road and East Lafayette Street and asked that no one not related to Risa enter or leave the restricted area. Fifteen Salisbury police officers, Detective Thibodeau, and State Bureau of Investigation, or SBI, crime scene investigators, began processing the small four-room house and surrounding areas looking for evidence. No forced entry into the home was detected. Risa's body was left where it was found in the front bedroom until 4 o'clock the next morning, so crime scene techs could analyze the scene as is. And they were meticulous and bagged and tagged everything according to the standards of the time. These included the knife handle found near the body and Risa's clothing, which was also found in the bedroom and appeared to have been torn from her body. A rootless hair found on Risa was collected as well. These items of evidence were sent to the SBI for testing and analysis. The SBI also videotaped the crime scene and prepared a crime scene analysis report for the Salisbury PD. Fingerprints were lifted from the scene that would later be linked to the home's inhabitants and Risa and Jody. In short, there was minimal evidence besides the body itself. Investigators came to the conclusion that the murder weapon was a knife that was in the Monroe house. It matched a set located in the Monroe's kitchen. The Salisbury police sat down and started interviewing Risa's family, friends, acquaintances, and neighbors to try to determine Risa's last movements and start working on a suspect list. Walt Trexler told the investigators that he had left the house around 3.45 that Friday to go by the family restaurant, pay a water bill, and go to the bank. I'm going to state here that this time is in doubt. The autopsy report, which I reviewed, contains a mini-incident report, which indicates that Risa was last seen alive by Walt at 4.30. Either way, when he left the house, Risa was there. She said to him, Papa, I'll watch TV until you get back. Walt's wife, Risa's grandmother Edith, had been home when Risa came over around 3.30, but she soon left for an appointment at the hairdresser. Around 5 o'clock, Walt got home from the store, and the front door of the house was locked. This was not unusual, he said, although Walt did not generally lock the doors. 
In fact, he told the Salisbury Post that, quote, we were constantly in and out of all the houses. I never locked the doors. But Risa usually locked it when she was home alone, he said. In any event, no one is really sure whether the door was locked that day or not. As Walt walked through the house carrying some of the groceries, he noticed right away that the front bedroom, used for guests, was in disarray. He said to the Salisbury Post, quote, That room was all tore up. I walked in and looked down and saw her. It was the most horrifying sight you could imagine. He knew right away, he said, that Risa was dead. That's when he stumbled outside, screaming for help. Police came to believe that in his shock, Walt had been the one to cover Risa with the blanket, a distraught grandfather not wanting his granddaughter to be displayed in such a degrading manner. Walt told police that nothing appeared to have been taken from the house. Risa, although naked, was still wearing a bracelet, watch, and ring. Detective Sergeant Jim Hurley, who stayed up through the night perusing the crime scene, said that they had not discovered anything to be missing. And there did not appear to have been forcible entry to the home, which meant that either someone who had access to the house had entered, or Risa had let someone in. But Walt said of his granddaughter that she would never let anyone come in the house. She kept the door locked, remember? He wondered whether her killer was someone from the neighborhood, someone Risa knew. An interview with Risa's best friend, Beth, revealed in just how small a window of time Risa had been slain. Beth told police that she spoke on the phone with Risa sometime between 3.30 and 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. I could not find out whether this phone call with Risa took place when Risa was already at her grandparents' house. But since we know that, according to Walt, Risa came over around 3.30, this seems likely to be the case. I was told that phone logs to and from the Monroe house were checked at the time, and there were no calls that could be connected to Risa's murder. As for Vicky, she had gotten home from work shortly after 4 o'clock. Doug was at work across town. It was super hot outside, so after a time, Vicky left again and ran to Kroger's to buy a fan because their AC was broken. She said she was gone maybe 20 minutes. When she pulled into the driveway is when she saw her dad screaming outside his house. This means that Risa was definitively killed sometime between 3.45 and 5 o'clock. Vicky said when her dad told her that something bad had happened to Risa, quote, I started to go hysterical, but then I thought, no, pull yourself together. She needs you. Get a hold of yourself. Maybe you can help her. So I went in. Blood was everywhere. It was too horrible. And then I ran. I don't know where. I know I ran through Richard's barbecue screaming. I know that. And then I don't know where all I ran. I guess people thought she's lost her mind. I kept trying to tell somebody, but everybody just stared. Risa's two male friends from the last day of her life were questioned. In fact, they were interrogated. Paul said he was visited at work at a fast food restaurant by officers asking all sorts of questions. Risa had only been found a couple of hours earlier. In fact, Paul hadn't even known Risa was dead until police showed up. He was sure they would try to pin it on him. Terrified, he said he contemplated leaving the state. They were both interrogated repeatedly. Paul and Jim were never connected to the case, but they also were not formally cleared for years, even though Paul, at least, had an alibi. Police canvassed the neighborhood and would not comment on whether anyone had seen anything. Sergeant Detective Jim Hurley did acknowledge that several witnesses were questioned, but a search of the neighborhood turned up nothing, and none of the witnesses could describe anyone they had seen with any specificity. After 24 hours of continuous investigation, Detective Hurley said to the Salisbury Post that, the SPD Detective Division was actively seeking, quote, any information we can get from anyone who might have seen or heard something in the area 
or who might possibly know something about the murder. They vowed to work the case until its resolution, aware that the murder was shockingly brutal and the public was shaken. The chief of police, David Fortson, said, quote, You can rest assured that we will be diverting all the resources we can in terms of manpower. Our investigators will continue on this day and night. They will be doing whatever it takes to clear this homicide. Among other things, investigators tried to determine whether Risa's murder could have been related to a rash of burglaries that took place on the same night she was killed. Four first-degree burglaries had been reported on the night of Friday the 15th. But there had been no reports of break-ins in Risa's neighborhood on that day. As described in the Salisbury Post, Risa's murder sent shockwaves through the city. Neighbor Hugh Allen told the paper, quote, Nothing like that has ever happened here. They're kind of shook up a bit, he said, referring to the neighbors. Mary Henderson, another neighbor, said, quote, Everybody's upset. I am, too. I didn't sleep all night. I was a nervous wreck. This is the first time anything like this has happened here. And another, Deborah Scoggins, told the Post, quote, It's really a shock. It's something you only hear about happening on TV. It's not supposed to happen at your back door. The brutal and heinous slaying of an innocent young girl was terrifying for everyone. If young girls were not safe in the homes of their grandparents, where was anyone safe? And next door, young Jody Trexler had been home alone during the whole thing. The investigation continued. The SBI crime lab analyzed several items taken from the crime scene. Tips called in by the public were pursued vigorously. On June 18th, it was reported that the SPD was planning on asking the FBI for help in this case. They were seeking a psychological profile of a possible suspect in Reese's murder. They were also considering asking the governor's office to put up a reward for information leading to Reese's killer. As Chief Fortson delicately put it, quote, We are at the point now, in keeping with our idea of doing everything we can in an investigation, of considering the reward as another tool that could cause information to come to the surface. The governor ended up contributing $5,000 to the reward pool started by local businesses. But it was quickly becoming apparent that police were stumped. As for Reese's family, they were traumatized by Reese's incomprehensible murder for a long, long time. It did not help that the crime scene became something of a tourist attraction. Vicky told the Salisbury Post that carloads of people drove by and stared at her as she watered her flowers. Some even walked right up to the window at her parents' house to try to get a glimpse of the bedroom where Risa had died. Gary Trexler was left with the Pontiac convertible he had been fixing up for Risa's 16th birthday. While the family was at the funeral, the room where Risa had been killed was repainted, recarpeted, and the furniture rearranged. Yet, Walt could never stand to look at it, so the door to the room remained closed. Walt wanted to sell the house, but Edith wanted to remain proximate to their children on the property. Walt said, quote, When it first happened, I used to think about it all day. Now I also dream about it all night. I can see Risa every time I walk on the porch, every time I walk into the house. Walt was unable to return to work at the barbecue restaurant for weeks, and when he did, he changed his schedule so he would never leave his wife home alone because she got an uneasy feeling in the house now. It took Vicky two weeks to steal herself to return to her job at the restaurant. Jody would not sleep alone. She had to sleep with her parents, even though her mom redecorated the room she had shared with her sister to try to lessen its association with Risa's memory. In October of the year Risa was killed, Walt said the family's life had become a living hell since their granddaughter was murdered, and he did not see an end in sight. He said his days were filled with frustration and anguish at his granddaughter's unsolved homicide. 
As I said earlier, investigators on Risa's case reached out to the FBI's relatively new Behavioral Science Unit, a precursor to today's BAU, and asked that agency to prepare a profile of their killer. This is an interesting quote from the Salisbury Post's August 29, 1994 article on the case. The FBI agrees to provide profiles in only a narrow selection of crimes, so-called motiveless murders, in which the nature of the killing points to major psychological abnormality in the killer. The article goes on to say that bizarre crimes have increased significantly in recent years, and that during the 1960s, according to the FBI, the rule of thumb was that in more than 80% of murder cases, the killer had a previous relationship with the victim. But recently, that 80% number had declined. For example, out of 22,516 killings in 1981, 45% were stranger murders, or murders in which the killer was listed as unknown. And these, as we all know, are much, much harder to solve. Anyway, it's not clear why Reese's case qualified as bizarre or abnormal, but the FBI did prepare a profile of the killer after reviewing the case file and speaking with the North Carolina investigators. It posited that the killer was a white male, age 18 to 24, who was very familiar with and comfortable in the Trexler's neighborhood. Interestingly, the profile said that the suspect likely knew of Risa, but was not personally acquainted with her. He was someone who was probably experiencing a stressful time in his personal life, and his behavior may have changed since the murder. I think the most interesting part of this is that the analysts did not believe that Risa had met her killer, because the fact that she was stabbed so many times usually indicates the opposite, a personal crime. And the profile said that a killer like Risa's, who does not bring along his own weapon but uses one on hand, is engaged in a more impulsive act and has a disorganized personality. Coming to the house unprepared also implied that the person probably came on foot and lived nearby. Based partially on this profile, SPD investigators announced in a press conference that they had a suspect. In a joint press conference with the SBI, SPD Sergeant P.J. Clemmer and Captain Wayne Whitman, head of the SPD Criminal Investigation Division, told the media that they had interviewed a suspect in Reese's murder several times. He had some of the characteristics described in the FBI profile, they said. They would not elaborate and refused to divulge specifics like the suspect's name, address, and so on. I believe that the suspect was Reese's unnamed boyfriend, but I can't verify this. Whitman said that the investigation was ongoing and they had no motive at this time. He said, quote, There is a big difference between getting a suspect and getting a conviction. He also said that Risa's murder was the most brutal and senseless crime involving a teen he had witnessed during his 22-year law enforcement career. Police confirmed that they were continuing to watch the suspect, although not 24 hours a day. Meanwhile, rumors started to fly throughout the community. It seems that the police revelation that there was a suspect was extremely premature or was deliberately exaggerated in order to take the heat off the family and or the investigators who were under tremendous pressure to solve the case. In actuality, investigators were divided about who was responsible. There was no arrest and the public did not hear much about this supposed suspect again. I know that the boyfriend passed a polygraph exam, so his arrest became less likely. At the August 1984 press conference, Captain Whitman stated flat out that one of the goals of the media session was to quell the rumors about the family's involvement in Reese's death. What he said was, quote, There have been some rumors about the family that we see as vicious and untrue. 
In the absence of an arrest and a tangible person who could be blamed for the horrific murder of a young girl, people had started to talk. Rumors started to spread about what had happened to Risa, and they weren't pretty. There were things like, Paul had killed Risa with a kitchen knife, Risa had a secret boyfriend, Risa had been shamelessly sunning herself in a bikini, and that was sinful, so she was killed because of that. It was all untrue and hurtful. But the most hurtful were the rumors about the family's involvement. Several factors had converged to make someone in the Trexler family the prime suspect in the eyes of the public. For one thing, the family was pretty well known in the area, thanks to the barbecue place they ran, and so the rumor mill in the town started to fly. As we've seen in a lot of cases where there are unanswered questions and gossipy residents, people started to whisper about who done it and began pointing fingers. The public scrutiny became almost unbearable for family members like Vicki Trexler. She told the Salisbury Post, quote, According to the rumors, we are all on drugs, we're all alcoholics, we're examples of the biggest case of incest in history. The first rumor I heard was about daddy, and it comes with variations. What she meant was people were singling out Walt as the likely killer. He had, after all, found Risa after being home alone with her. And Vicky recalled several people in town heard her yelling, no, daddy, no, after she found Risa's dead body in his house. Word spread that Vicky had named her father as Risa's killer. She told the Salisbury Post, quote, Unfortunately, people called police and said, I said my daddy did it. This all continued despite literally every law enforcement person who talked to Walt, describing him as both devastated and cooperative. Detective Thibodeau said he could tell Walt was telling the truth. But Walt wasn't the only family member who was dragged through the mud. Vicky, her husband Doug, and even young Jody were labeled by town gossip as potential killers. Here are some of the rumors that the family or their friends overheard in the months after Risa's death. One woman telling another at a coffee shop, I heard the grandfather did it. The other woman agreed, I heard that too. He has a whole lot of antique guns, and someone went in trying to steal them, and she was there. Walt did not, in fact, own any such guns, by the way. Someone telling someone else, Vicky caught Risa in bed with Doug and killed her. Or, Walt had been molesting the girls and Risa fought back and he killed her. And then the worst rumors of all, because they would persist for decades, that Jody, Risa's little sister, was jealous and envious and killed Risa. And this rumor had traction and devastating consequences for the family. Let's take a look at why these rumors about Jody, which were not founded on any fact or evidence, took off. There is no question that the police interviews fanned the flames of gossip and speculation about the family. Detective Thibodeau admitted that Jody was a suspect very early on, and so was everyone in the family. It's just part of any thorough investigation. As Vicky said, they have to do their investigation, so they ask questions. They've been to the neighbors and asked questions. They have to do it. But then people say, the police said this, and the police asked me that, and that's caused problems. Questions about the Monroes and Trexlers intended to gather information to rule them out, instead cast a shadow of doubt that grew into an assumption of guilt. Despite denials from the family and the support of Risa's friends, who one article called disturbed and angry about the rumors, the tide of public opinion mounted against the family. Another reason the family became a focus of scrutiny was that people who were interviewed had made certain judgments and relayed those to the police. For example, neighbor Laura L., who grew up with the Trexler girls and knew them well, told police that Jody had said on the bus one time that she hated her sister. Laura's father was a captain with the SPD, so weight was placed on her observations. 
I can't tell you how many times I've said I hate my sister, but that's an aside. Laura also noted that Jody was stone-faced at her sister's funeral, the only one who was not in tears. And Laura heard that Jody had been found by the EMTs simply standing there, staring at her sister's body on the floor. Risa's best friend Beth was also suspicious of Jody and contributed to the whispers about the girl's guilt. Rumors spread around the small town that perhaps Jody had killed her sister in a fit of rage, jealousy, or whatever emotional tide drove her into a murderous passion. Jody being the killer also aligned with what investigators were theorizing. It was believed from the outset that it was likely Risa knew her killer, since there was no sign of a break-in into the home, and she had been hanging out alone in her grandparents' house, not her own. Someone knew where to find her. People asked, what are the chances a random killer would find her at her grandparents' house? Not very high. And the repeated stabbings and covering the victim with a blanket were a sign that the killer was personally invested in Risa and felt remorse after killing her, people said. Some of the police thought that Risa's murder was a two-person job, and some of them started thinking that maybe Jody had been in cahoots with someone she had let into the house, and they colluded in the murder. A female fingernail found in the bedroom, not belonging to Risa, contributed to this theory. Also, investigators, knowing that Risa had a boyfriend who had seen her that day or the day before, had written off the seminal fluid found in Risa as likely belonging to him. That could mean that the murderer and the sexual partner, or even sexual assaulter, were not the same person. The killer could have been anyone, even a preteen girl. Jody later said that after the murder, police checked her over to see if she had any injuries that she could have sustained in the process of stabbing her sister. And as soon as the funeral was over, she was beset by investigators interrogating her. After all, Jody was home alone that day during the time when Risa was killed, and she said she had heard and seen nothing. She had no alibi. But her mother, who was at Kroger, her stepfather, who was at work, and her grandparents all did. Jody's questioners demanded the details of the day over and over again, and flat out asked Jody accusingly whether she had killed her sister. They demanded that she submit biological samples and take a polygraph. Vicky, desperate to protect her remaining daughter, refused all of these. The pressure was so intense and the direction of the inquiry so laser-focused on the 13-year-old girl that the Trexlers had to hire an attorney to shut it down. Although Jody had been nothing but cooperative, the tide of public opinion mounted against her. She became prime suspect number one in the eyes of the town. Jody later said that the rumors about her resulted in her friends abandoning her and her spending her days crying and alone. As a result of all the baseless whispers flying about Jody, her parents moved her out of Salisbury High to a private school, North Hills Christian. This resulted in more whispers that she was moved because people at her old school knew she had done something. Vicki lamented to the Salisbury Post, Do the people who pass on the rumors hear Jody crying at night or see poor daddy walking around broken? A counselor consulted by the Salisbury Post addressed why rumors take hold, saying, quote, Rumors grow out of a desire for completeness. No one likes incomplete information. There is a thrust to say, this is the answer. Now we don't have to live with the unknown. People just don't like unfinished business. They want answers to questions, and if they don't have an answer, they'll come up with one. I can't help but think about how accurate this is, even in the true crime community today. Jody said that eventually it even got to the point where her mom didn't seem to believe her. The pressure to blame her was significant, and her mom's confidence in her innocence began to crack. Their relationship was ruined by the doubt, Jody said. Let's get back to the investigation. 
Right after the murder on June 21st, Walt Monroe told the Salisbury Post that he felt the SPD was doing everything it could to catch Reese's killer. Well, that opinion changed before too long. About five months after the murder, Walt and others in the family publicly criticized the investigation, saying that police had not devoted enough men to the case and were not making any progress. Walt told the Salisbury Post that Sergeant Phil Clemmer was doing all he could, but one man could only do so much and they needed more eyes on the case. Walt was also skeptical about the FBI profile and its usefulness. He said, quote, They say they have evidence, but I don't believe it. They might figure out with that FBI profile thing what type of guy that is, but they ain't going to catch him unless they go out and look for him. He went on, what frustrates you is knowing how she died, the pain that somebody caused her, and that if the police had done the job at the time, they would have caught somebody by now. Salisbury Post columnist Homer Lucas commented in July 1984, quote, there are many who think officers investigating the murder are dragging their feet. SPD Chief Fortson responded that Clemmer, Whitman, and SBI agent Lane, who was assigned to the case in conjunction with SPD investigators, were working the case daily. He said, quote, Initially, we allocated the necessary resources to run down the available information. We had seven or eight people working on the case, but as the investigation continued, we dropped that number down. He went on, The information we need to make the arrest is simply not available at this point in time, and that is a particularly frustrating experience. Walt said, quote, I know they think I'm crazy at the police department, and I've got a right to be. Even if they catch whoever did it, the nightmares still will be there. Part of the reason rumors persisted about someone in the family having killed Risa was probably because the case lingered unsolved. And the notion of a crazed killer who struck in a very small time frame and targeted Risa at her grandparents' house and then escaped in broad daylight was just very hard to believe. As the Salisbury Post put it in its June 1985 article commemorating the anniversary of Risa's slaying, quote, It's frustrating and unnerving for the family and the community to think that in broad daylight, someone could come to a house in a quiet neighborhood and commit murder. This weekend marks the one-year point in the murder and investigation. According to many observers, the public interest in this case has been unsurpassed. In other words, everyone was talking about the murder, and in an information vacuum, gossip and innuendo flourish. And the police admitted that one year out, they did not have a lot to go on. Sergeant Detective P.G. Clemmer told the Salisbury Post, quote, It's not at a standstill. We still get a few leads to work every once in a while, but not very frequently. But as the Salisbury Post pointed out, quote, coffee shop detectives have pinned the crime within the family while blaming police for not finding the killer. Detective Thibodeau later said that they questioned hundreds of people, yet the family went through hell. In a town of 30,000, most were suspicious of the family. Speaking of interviews, what the public did not know was how hard police worked the case behind the scenes. Detective Clemmer and SBI agent Lane consulted experts in Winston-Salem and New York, looked for connections in similar stabbings, such as that of Sue Ellen Holloman, which I'll discuss shortly, and traveled to other jurisdictions to consult and seek guidance. The SBI reviewed the case over and over. Investigators and medical experts reconstructed the crime scene. Per the Salisbury Post's June 1985 article, quote, Clemmer and Lane have interviewed suspects and other inmates in jails in Asheville, Lillington, Chapel Hill, and Lexington. Numerous local persons with even minute connections to Miss Trexler have been given lie detector tests. It's hard to believe that no one with solid information about seeing something strange in the neighborhood that day has come forward. The case started to go cold. 
At the August 1984 press conference, SPD Captain Whitman said, We will make an arrest and clear this case even if it takes one year, two years, or five years. Well, he was wrong. In June 1988, four years after the murder, Vicki was still looking for answers. She and Walt talked to TV reporters on camera. He stated that the family had not received any interactions from the SPD of late. They were not confident that the SPD was doing everything possible to solve the case. Walt and Vicki urged investigators to try harder. Six years after Risa's murder, Vicki wrote a letter to the editor of the Salisbury Post that was published in the paper. In it, she addressed the family's anguish at the unsolved nature of the case, but also addressed how painful and destructive the rumors in town about the family's involvement had been. She said, quote, Because this case has never been solved, people are naturally curious. What they seem to forget is that all these unanswered mysteries surrounding Reese's death are very agonizing for us to live with. Even years after the murder, the Salisbury Post wrote, quote, some family members, including Jody Trexler, the then 13-year-old sister, have long been thought by many as the killer. Others claimed Walt Monroe killed his granddaughter. It's hard to imagine how painful this experience was for Reese's family, having their tragedy compounded by accusations of complicity. There was one very tantalizing suspect in Reese's case who was considered by police because of his similar M.O. in other crimes. On March 14, 1985, Lexington resident Sue Ellen Holloman, age 16, stayed home sick from school. Her dad came home around 12.30 on his lunch break to check on her and found her feeling a little better. Mr. Holloman left to go back to work. And sometime before Sue Ellen's mom came home that afternoon, someone abducted Sue Ellen from her home. Her mom called the police when she couldn't explain her daughter's disappearance. Sue Ellen's body was found by a farmer a month later, on April 15th, in a remote field surrounded by a wooded area. She was buried in a shallow grave, her sweatpants around her ankles, her underwear around her lower thighs, and her t-shirt pulled up. She had been raped, strangled, and stabbed. And this part is very chilling because her murderer confessed, revealing the details of what had happened that day, and giving us a glimpse into the terrifying randomness of many of these senseless murders. Ricky Lee Sanderson was incarcerated in Central Prison in Davidson County, North Carolina, in July 1986, when he summoned the Sheriff's Department and told them he wanted to confess to Sue Ellen's murder. He said that on March 14, 1985, he had been driving around Davidson County looking for a house to break into. He selected the Holloman's house simply because it was surrounded by woods and somewhat secluded. When he attempted to enter the house, Sue Ellen met him at the door. He asked her if he could use the phone in an attempt to gain entry to the house. She said that she was not allowed to let anybody in while her parents were not home, but he pushed his way in. When he asked her if there was money in the house, she said no. He decided to leave and took Sue Ellen with him to prevent her from reporting his license plate information. He forced her onto the floorboard of his car and then drove her to a secluded area and raped her on the ground. He then shut her inside the trunk of his car while he dug her grave. Then he got her out of the trunk, forced her to sit down, and choked her until she passed out. To be sure she was dead, he then stabbed her with a knife he had in his car. Evidence from the crime scene, such as paint chips from Sanderson's car and fibers from Sue Ellen's clothing and her pubic hairs found in his vehicle, verified his story. Plus, the murder aligned with Sanderson's previous crimes. When he confessed, he was serving life plus 110 years in prison for raping a woman at knife point in a Lexington motel room while her toddler slept just feet away. 
He had also kidnapped a woman from a Salisbury area lake and raped and stabbed her 82 times, breaking off the knife blade, just like in Reese's case. Miraculously, this woman survived. But it's readily apparent why police would look hard at Sanderson and Reese's case. He picked his young female victims at random and raped and stabbed them to death in the same time frame and same general vicinity where Risa was killed in a remarkably similar manner. But Sanderson didn't kill Risa. Ricky Lee Sanderson was executed for the murder of Sue Ellen Holloman on January 30, 1998 at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. While death penalty opponents prayed outside the prison during his 2 a.m. execution, Proponents loudly chanted, na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. As for Reese's case, Jim ended up spiraling into alcohol and drugs and died at age 48. Paul and Jody fell out because he believed the rumors from the town and his parents, and Jody went through years of personal struggles after being the main focus of town gossip. Walt died in 2007, never seeing resolution to the case. Vicky said she resigned herself to it never being solved. Fast forward to 2018, 34 years after Risa's death. The case was stone cold. No one had worked it for years. Still desperate after decades to clear her name of any involvement in her sister's death, in April of 2018, Jody Trexler-Laird was featured on The Dr. Phil Show in an episode titled, Cold Case, I Didn't Murder My 15-Year-Old Sister. The false accusations and small-town gossip haunt me. On the show, Dr. Phil and Jody discussed the case and the accusations that had haunted Jody all these years. As the Salisbury Post put it, quote, Laird, now in her 40s, was just 13 when Risa, 15, was found stabbed to death at their grandparents' home. Laird said she had long been labeled a suspect by Salisbury residents and endured decades of gossip about whether she was guilty or innocent. Jody told Dr. Phil that the negative comments still persisted on social media and that she felt it was time to set the record straight once and for all. Jody told Dr. Phil, quote, I don't know why I was made the targeted suspect, but she was, and according to her, she was questioned much more than any other member of her family. This could be because, remember, she did not have an alibi, and her mom, seeking to protect her only remaining child, kept her from submitting samples or taking a lie detector test. Jody said that at times it was clear to her that even her and Risa's mom, Vicky, wavered in her conviction as to her younger daughter's innocence. According to Jody, her mother would ask if there was anything she wanted to tell her and assured her that she would not get mad about whatever Jody would want to say. The public scrutiny and cruel rumors had a deleterious effect on Jody's young life. She told Dr. Phil that after Risa's death, she lashed out, she was rebellious and angry, and she had to go to rehab at 15 because of alcohol and drug abuse. The Dr. Phil show also featured Laura L. This was the friend of the girls who, in 1984, had told police that Jody said she hated Risa on the school bus, and also that Jody had been emotionless at the funeral. On the Dr. Phil show, even after all these years, Laura said that Jody had always had a dark side and said that she was the black sheep of the family. And even Beth, who had been Risa's best friend, called into the show and said that she had always believed that Jody knew something about Risa's murder. And then, before the national TV audience, Jody submitted to a polygraph test, which, according to polygrapher examiner Jack Tremarco, concluded that she was telling the truth. She had not killed her sister. Jody cried tears of joy, and Laura apologized to Jody for doubting her all these years. It was all a little bit of a publicity stunt, but the point was made. 
Jody did not kill her sister. Dr. Phil's coverage of the Risa Trexler case, although limited to Jody's story, generated a resurgence of public interest in the unsolved murder. And Salisbury police detective Travis Schulenberger and representatives from the SBI took note. Detective Schulenberger contacted Jody within two days of the Dr. Phil episode and told her he was taking a fresh look at the Risa Trexler case. He assured Jody that he did not think she had anything to do with her sister's murder. Schulenberger told the Salisbury Post that, quote, Detectives have begun talking to people who were familiar with the family and the case and those who may remember new details. Schulenberger found that much of the physical evidence from the crime was still preserved in the files good as new. Some of it had never been tested. That which had, had not been tested using modern DNA extraction technology. Schulenberger sent the remainder of the vaginal swabs taken from Risa to the state crime lab in June 2018, and they developed a male DNA profile from the sample. But running the profile through the CODIS database resulted in no hits. Whoever had killed Risa was not in the database. And voluntary DNA samples Schulenberger collected from interviewees such as Jim and Paul and family members like Doug and Eddie were not a match. The attorney general later said the state crime lab conducted 10 rounds of testing and produced 14 evidence reports for law enforcement over the 35 years of this case. The identity of Risa's killer continued to be elusive. In March of 2019, the Salisbury police contracted with Parabon, which had already established a name for itself in solving cold cases that had DNA. The North Carolina Crime Lab sent DNA extract from the sperm fraction taken into evidence in Reese's case to the Virginia company. It took Parabon only a few weeks to provide a name, based on several third cousins of the suspect who were in Jedmatch. The forensic genealogy report was delivered to the SPD on April 8, 2019. On December 3, 2019, Salisbury Police Chief Jerry Stokes kicked off a press conference announcing the closure of the Risa Trexler case. C.C. Moore was in attendance via Skype. Detective Travis Schulenberger said that the 2018 Dr. Phil episode had sparked renewed interest in the case among members of the Salisbury Police. He discussed the history of the case and said that he first heard about it when he became a detective in 2007. When he reopened it in 2018, he noted that evidence from the 1984 crime scene was well-preserved, and there was ample material available for new, sophisticated DNA testing. He specifically cited the work of Sergeant Jim Hurley 35 years earlier. C.C. Moore spoke via Skype, saying that this was the 80th case in which Parabon had been involved in helping identify a criminal suspect. C.C. explained how the SNP genotyping used by Parabon analysts allows them to see a much larger portion of the suspect's genetic code, which in turn permits them to triangulate with his distant cousins once the profile is uploaded to GEDmatch. Parabon was able to provide the Salisbury investigators a potential suspect name. Parabon concluded that the male subject named in their report was, quote, a very strong candidate to be the unidentified male extracted DNA profile. But officials at the press conference refused to name the suspect. This was because, although they were certain that he was Reese's killer, he had not had a chance to go through the legal process. And he never would because he was dead. All law enforcement would say was, the Salisbury Police Department and State Bureau of Investigation does consider this case solved and now closed, quoting Detective Schulenberger. To wrap up the press conference, authorities stated in no uncertain terms that the suspect had no connection to Reese's family. 
We would like to say that Jody has been completely exonerated in this case and the suspect had no connection to the Trexler or Monroe family. This was because the DNA evidence had completely exonerated any members of the Trexler and Monroe families and specifically Jody Trexler Laird of having anything to do with Reese's death. Detective Schulenberger said that in fact, Jody was the one responsible for bringing the case back to the forefront. North Carolina's Attorney General Josh Stein reiterated this exoneration. The family, maligned by the public for 35 years, was innocent. The suspect was someone else entirely. Okay, so who was it? And how do investigators know with 100% certitude that he was the killer since he was deceased? The answer is, his name was Curtis Edward Blair Sr., and he was exhumed so his DNA could be tested. I obtained a copy of the exhumation report for Curtis Edward Blair, filed on June 5, 2019, just 10 days shy of the 35th anniversary of Risa's murder. And the affidavit lays out a bunch of evidence in this case that was not previously public information. Here's what the affidavit in support of the order of exhumation lists as evidence in support of testing the DNA of Curtis Blair. Several witnesses in Risa's neighborhood told police that, quote, they witnessed a black male running in the area of the crime scene at the time of the homicide. At the press conference, Detective Schulenberger clarified that approximately nine witnesses interviewed by police investigating Reese's homicide saw a black male in the area on that day, June 5, 1984. Five of these witnesses saw this black man running from the area. A neighbor named Glenn Holbrook told police he saw a black man running away from Walt's house that afternoon. But the witness statements at the time had seemed unreliable as they conflicted with each other with regard to the suspect's specific description and the direction he was running and the time. Some of them also conflicted with some of the early information being gathered by police. Several of the witness stories changed as well after the initial telling. None of the witnesses provided a reliable description. None of it was concrete enough to provide police with any real direction. But there was one piece of evidence that backed up the witness statements. Remember, I said that a hair had been found on Risa. Well, lab tests indicated that this hair was likely from an African-American man. And the original autopsy report, which I reviewed, has black male handwritten in the perpetrator box. Of course, I could not help but wonder why on earth police had not released this fact. Doing so would have alleviated the public suspicion of Risa's family. I've been told that the fact was that the early investigators just weren't sure what the origin of the hair was, whether it was connected to the crime or belonged to an EMT, deputy, someone else at the scene, or even someone who had been in the Monroe house earlier. The police affidavit went on to explain the processes used by Parabon to identify Curtis Edward Blair Sr. as Risa's possible killer. And once investigators had this name, they were able to dig up quite a bit of circumstantial evidence that he had killed Risa. In 1984, Blair was an African-American man in his 40s living in Rowan County, and his employment in the summer of 84 brought him into Reese's Salisbury neighborhood on a daily basis. He worked at the Frito-Lay plant that was visible from the Monroe and Trexler homes. We just have no idea whether he had seen Risa in the past and singled her out, or whether perhaps he was planning on robbing the Monroe home, striking when they were out, and did not realize that Risa was there. I've been told by a source that I'm not going to name that Blair was well known to law enforcement in the area at the time as a regular at B&E. He often broke into homes and stole and was known to hang out with men who engaged in similar crimes. 
It certainly stands to reason that he saw that Walt and his wife were out and decided to break in. But Blair's criminal record wasn't just petty crimes. He had a crime of extreme violence in his past. Here's what happened. On Saturday, May 21, 1966, Blair was 22 years old and living on North Long Street in Salisbury with his wife Elmira and their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter Gwendolyn. Around 1.30 a.m., Blair got home and he and his wife got into an argument. She ran into the back bedroom with her daughter. He chased them, wielding a butcher knife, and he ended up stabbing his wife in the leg and also stabbing the toddler in the stomach with the knife. Elmira was treated and released, but Gwendolyn had to have emergency surgery at Rowan Memorial Hospital, where she was listed in serious condition. Blair was charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Eventually, he was convicted of this brutal attack on his own family and served time in prison. Nowhere could I find out how much time Blair actually served for this vicious attack on his family. So based on all this circumstantial evidence, plus the DNA lead reported by Parabon, Salisbury police petitioned the court for an order of exhumation to collect forensic DNA from what was left of Curtis Edward Blair Sr. Because it found that the affidavit showed sufficient cause to exhume the body, namely to close a murder case, the court granted the order. So on August 13, 2019, under the auspices of SBI Special Agents K.M. Wright and L.C. Lale, Blair's grave in Salisbury's Memorial Park Cemetery was opened and his body disinterred. It was transported to Lyerly Funeral Home for the DNA extraction process. Lyerly donated its services for this procedure. Then Blair's remains were sealed back up in the casket and reinterred in his grave. Detective Schulenberger transported the physical sample from Blair to the North Carolina State Crime Lab, which compared the sample taken from the corpse with the suspect sample from Risa's rape kit. The crime lab reported on August 6, 2019, that the major contributor to the sample from Risa was consistent with the DNA of Curtis Blair Sr. He was, indeed, her killer. So what else do we know about Curtis Blair? Curtis Blair was born on October 26, 1943, in Rowan County to parents Alan Blair and Pearl Fox. Blair graduated from Dunbar High School, and his obituary says he was a member of the Baptist Church. He married Elmira Turner on December 10, 1963. They had three children, including Curtis Edward Blair Jr., who was born in the Bronx, New York. Jr. died in 2010, and Elmira died in 2006. At some point, Blair moved to California, where he lived out the remainder of his life. He died August 6, 2004, at age 60, of acute ventricular failure and congestive heart failure, according to the death certificate. He also had retroperitoneal sarcoma, a cancer of the internal bodily tissues. He was living in El Cajon, San Diego County at the time of his death. His remains were returned to North Carolina and interred at Memorial Park Cemetery in Salisbury. His family paid for this. He was listed as divorced and his occupation as a machine operator in the food production industry. According to A&E, he had a string of arrests in New York and California besides his record in North Carolina. So how did Risa and Blair cross paths? Well, we know that he was an employee at the Frito-Lay factory, which was catty corner across the street from the homes of Vicky and Walt. And the autopsy report contains a tiny notation written in old-fashioned handwriting that, to be honest, I had to use a magnifying glass to try to decipher. It says, quote, Distraught grandfather who found her says he tried to report a prowler to police for two weeks in evenings, and they did not respond like he thought they should have. 
There was also a path, a cut-through of sorts, behind the Monroe and Trexler homes that many people used to get to and from the Frito-Lay plant. We'll never know for sure how Risa and Blair's interaction came about that day, but it seems to me that perhaps Curtis Blair, having observed the Monroe home for several days, if not weeks, was prowling around that afternoon and saw no cars in the driveway. He was experienced at breaking and entering, remember. Somehow, and we don't know whether he sneaked in or Risa opened the door, he got in and what happened, happened. I can't imagine why, with multiple witnesses saying they saw a black man running away, investigators focused closer to home for so many years. One thing I do know is that Curtis Blair Sr. was interviewed in connection with Risa's case early on. He was on police radar because of his record of a violent stabbing and his history of B&E and because he worked in the area. He possibly was involved in drugs. To some investigators, he was a viable suspect. Others disagreed, though, and there was no concrete evidence at the time, since DNA was not a thing yet. They could not pin Risa's murder on him, and he spent the next 20 years living out his life free as a bird. After the press conference announcing the closure of the case, members of Risa's family gathered and made some statements to the media. Jody said, quote, I just want to say how thrilled me and my family are. It's been a long road, something that honestly for many, many years we didn't think would happen. 35 years is a long time, and we're just as happy as we could possibly be. Of course, with him being deceased, I know we'll never get all the answers that we want, but at least we have the answers that we need. She was a wonderful person, and we miss her. Vicki, Reese's mom, said she never thought that they would have an answer. No, I did not. We did not. I did not think it would come. I just lived with the fact that it was not going to be solved. So many nights laying in bed wondering and wondering and wondering, and maybe now I can sleep. At the press conference, A.G. Josh Stein said, quote, Sometimes justice is swift, other times it takes longer, and today, after 35 years, this case is closed. Well, as Attorney General Stein just said, after 35 years, Risa Trexler's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Here's the part where I usually thank the member or members of law enforcement who helped me gather information I needed for this episode. I will say that this is the first case in which the relevant law enforcement agency flat out refused to speak with me or provide me with any information. I was told, quote, all the documents or records you have requested are considered exempt from release as they are criminal investigative file information. So this is why I cannot provide more detail about the forensic genealogy, the exhumation, or Curtis Blair. To my anonymous source, you know who you are. Thank you. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. We often hear the stories of parents warning their children about the dangers of strangers. But the reality is, children are more likely to come to harm by people they know and trust than people they don't. Here at Stolen Lives, we believe cases involving crimes against children do not get the attention they deserve. These cases are important, and the victims should not be forgotten. We want to give a voice to those whose lives are lost or stolen. 
Cases like the brutal murder of Geralee Underwood, searching for answers for the identity of baby lollipops, and the mysterious unsolved disappearances of Oren and Orson West. Listen to Stolen Lives on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, or wherever you listen to great podcasts, like the one you are listening to today. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, and at dnaidpodcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.